0: Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club for the stuck at home. I'm Nate DeMaio.
1: And I'm Karina Longworth. This week, we're eating steaks and drinking too many Jamesons, while taking on the Catholic Church and various personal demons. In Sidney Lumet's The Verdict.
0: As always, we're going to play a game and uh, talk about what we've been watching lately. But first, a quick note. This episode was recorded a couple of weeks back, before the world fell further apart, Just to tell you where our heads were at as we talked. Anyway, let's kick things off with our guest, Mark Olson of the Los Angeles Times.
2: Well, I think probably like a lot of people over the last few weeks in particular, I've been revisiting the works of filmmaker Lynn Shelton, who died from a non-COVID-related health issue, you know, when we're recording this a few weeks back. Personally, I started with what's my favorite of her movies, Your Sister's Sister, that stars Mark Duplass, Rosemary DeWitt, and Emily Blunt, and and you know you can kind of feel her in that movie, like pushing at the edges of like the micro budget scene that she came out of, but and that there's a level of like craft and just sort of care to that movie, and also the performances that she gets out of people that are really exciting and and feel really fully formed. And then I also watched Laggies, which is kind of her slickest and most commercial movie, but at the same time is also very like flaky and sad and i think if you take the movies that lynn made the her feature filmmaking work and then you add in the television work that she did it, she left behind an amazing coherent like body of work and i think she's one someone who's just done so well in this new ecosystem of filmmakers kind of going back and forth between movies and tv and it's just it's it's such a loss that she 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 died when it seemed like she still had so much work to do i
0: didn't know her but I was instantly reminded how many people I, I know uh, did know her and almost all of them from my end were uh, people who had worked with her on television projects and it was really remarkable like how many people just just talked about um, not just sort of how lovely she was on set and how kind she was and, and what a team player she was and all of that but just everyone really like instantly had this thing that I think speaks to what you're talking about. They would really just kind of describe this Lynn Shelton-ness that she brought to the scenes and brought to the shots, and that you really can see in the movies.
1: I was so, so, so shocked, you know, to hear about her passing. I mean, to see somebody who, like, was obviously, like, hitting a groove in her life and in her work, it's just, you know, I found it really devastating, and it felt strange to be devastated in this time of death by a single death.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I don't exactly know how to segue, so I will just segue. (laughs) Um, This week, was this kind of week where I kept putting on things that I was really expecting to love and all of them just fell a little bit short. I rewatched California split um, for the first time Mm -hmm. since I was really young and I watched it on the movie loft, which as I say that like, I know that there are a lot of people in the audience who are going to instantly have the surge of nostalgia because if you lived in new England in the seventies, eighties and nineties, I think it might even still in some capacity be going on. Um, There was this UHF channel, WSBK channel 38 in Boston. Um, that had a, sort of an intro like, AMC-like movie presentation hosted by this guy named Dana Hershey, who, had, who was this kind of, like, kind of rugged estete. <laughs> you know? He's kind of like a downtown Charlie Rose.
1: This is the film which first
0: brought young Steven Spielberg wide acclaim and marked him as a filmmaker to be reckoned with.
1: Truly a dynamic film tonight. Duel. Buckle up and hang on.
0: I remember seeing um, California Split on that, Um, when I was a kid and knowing that it has really has such a cult especially here in LA where there are just some real California split heads Mm -hmm. like it's kind of like down and out version of Southern California and you know rightfully love sort of Elliot Gould movies and these kind of shaggy Robert Altman movies I was really expecting to love it It just kind of didn't like I even I get it I understand why like right now on on Amazon Prime it's it's uh it's streaming they've uh, got some music rights stuff, you know, worked out, and it's like a new, newly restored vision that hasn't been seen since it was, I think, maybe even in the theaters. Um, I think it's like slightly longer, and so it's kind of restored some scenes and, and worked out the music cues. And there's so much in it that, like, I am primed to love. Like, I love this kind of Los Angeles. Like, I love at that era Elliot Gould. I was actually just reminded that I just have sort of an aversion to George Segal as movie star. I, think hmm. I, I like him in supporting roles and like every time he's sort of thrust at the center of the movie, like I don't quite connect and I may be alone in that.
1: Wow, Nate. I don't know. Wow.
0: I don't mean to. Uh, I, f-
1: I kind of wonder if this is like that one week where I just didn't really feel like watching anything. And so I was like, Silence of the Lambs? Uh-uh. You know, I just, I wonder if like, you know, maybe things are as, as the children say, hitting different sometimes in the core.
0: But also I feel like the the bar has been set so high, like on California's, but like I, A, I remembered liking it. And then the number of people whose taste I really like and and often find myself like really clicking with, they ride or die for this movie. Like I was totally expecting to like jump on the train and it was really good. The amount of like, man, I'm going to turn this thing on. And I'm going to you know, fall in love all over again. I'm going to remember what love is. Didn't quite happen.
2: Well, I think a lot of times like shaggy vibe type movies, they are really like you either are in it or you're way yeah. out of it. So it could even be one of those things where, like if you watch that movie again in like a year or something, you may like totally sync up with it. But it just I think I can totally see why a movie like that may not hit right, you know, right now.
0: But then the other thing that I did, I turned on like sort of extraordinarily randomly one morning over the weekend, um, I turned on the French Lieutenant's Woman, which I had never seen. I'm, you know, went in feeling like, you know, Harold Pinter script and young Merrill and young Jeremy Irons, uh, lush costume drama. The only thing that I sort of knew about its sort of reputation besides like remembering sort of what it did at the box office vaguely and remembering how it did at the Oscars, um, was that it had an odd structure. But there's that wonderful opening shot where Meryl is walking through the streets of the seaside village in her period costume, pull back and reveal that she's being filmed by a contemporary movie crew. And I could not have been more in. Um, yet, I enjoyed every single second of, watch- of watching that movie, but I remain unconvinced that it was a good movie. And then I spent the next days uh, taking a tip from Hillary Weston, who works at the Criterion channel. Where she was describing how she often like walks around listening to Criterion Channel commentary tracks while she's walking the dog or jogging, and so I totally did that this week. Like I was walking around, you know, walking the dog, walking the block, uh, listening to commentaries from The French Lieutenant's Woman, which is the single nerdiest thing I've ever done. <laughs> how about you, Karina?
1: You're like blowing my mind right now <laughs> that you. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, who could have thought that there would be a global pandemic that would kill a hundred thousand Americans and during that time, Nate DeMo would decide that he liked three women and not California Split. <laughs> and and then French Lieutenant's Woman, a movie I've never been able to finish. But maybe I should try again.
0: Well or maybe not. I'm not saying it's actually like again. <laughs> I don't know it's actually a good movie. And and again, for the record I totally like California Split, but I was expecting to love it. That's the difference there.
1: All right. No, wait,
2: Karina, why have you never been able to finish French Lieutenant's Woman? It's not
0: even that long. Because I
1: fall asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. I should probably try again. I mean, as I noted when we talked about Three Women, like, I tried to put that on three times, and I'd always fallen asleep while they were still, like, in the pool during the credits.
0: That really is the challenge of the whole it's the pictures got small thing. Like, there really are, like, movies that, like, you know, if I were watching California Split at, like, the New Beverly, like... It would have been an entirely different experience. But like on a Tuesday afternoon, it's a different situation.
1: So I have this other podcast called You Must Remember This. And uh, (laughs) on that podcast, um, I've been working for a long time on a new season about Polly Platt, who is best known for having been married to Peter Bogdanovich and left... Um, By him for Sybil Shepard, but she also was a production designer and a producer and a screenwriter and had a lengthy career that had nothing to do with Peter Bogdanovich. And so um, because, you know, we can't actually go to movie theaters and do any kind of actual physical screening series to help draw attention to the, the podcast season and to, you know, kind of start a conversation about it. Um, I'm doing this collaboration with Vidiots, the Los Angeles video store, which is soon to turn into an in-person Cinematech and sort of screening library space. Hopefully um, that's the plan. And what we're doing is we're asking people to watch a movie related to the podcast every week, and then I'm going to get on Instagram Live on Tuesday nights to discuss that movie and that episode with a special guest. So to prepare for that, I watched a movie which I didn't actually have to watch when I was making the podcast season because it's um, kind of tangential. I mean, Polly Platt didn't work on it. It was very important to her life, but I didn't really need to write about the movie itself to make the podcast season, so I just didn't watch it. But I watched it now. So I could talk about it. Um, And it is One-Eyed Jax directed by and starring Marlon Brando. And, you know, I think I had been given the impression um, through some writing about that movie that it was, you know, kind of a a vanity project slash noble failure. And I found myself really, really enthralled by it um, and just super into it as a movie that is sort of delivering everything I find interesting about the Westerns I find interesting while also kind of moving the genre forward in a progressive way. And, and it's also just crazy gorgeous to watch. Um, So that was nice. And, um, and then, uh, you know, I, I'm not like a big basketball fan. And so I didn't devour the last dance, you know, week to week, the way a lot of people did, but um, we got we started getting caught up on it this weekend and watched like four episodes in a row. We're up to we finished episode six. So that was interesting. Um, you know, I, I think I'm still kind of like not as deep into it as as people who for whom Michael Jordan means more than he means to me. But um, certainly it's been fun seeing the 90s footage. And it's yeah. been I mean, you know, I think people like who really know who, a lot about Jordan and that period of basketball and sort of his persona and what he means, Um, they have opinions as to, you know, how honest the film is, since he obviously had a con- sort of control over how he was being presented. And I don't have those opinions. I, I don't really care. But it seems it seems to me that he's a sociopath. Sure. And that's that's sort of interesting. Um, and then what happened was that last night we watched the first part of Marina Zinovich's new ESPN documentary about Lance Armstrong. And he is a sociopath in similar ways. <laughs> um, you know, I think he is, you know, kind of more... There's something sort of more off kilter about Lance Armstrong and certainly in the way in which he seems to be trying to do like mythology repair by participating in this film. It's like this the thing that that Jordan seems to be doing sort of like under the surface. But everybody can tell Lance is kind of doing in your face. Um, and but just like thinking about athletes and success and and the the extent to which like you maybe you have to be if not a sociopath then at least like you have to be able to shut down the part of you that has empathy in order to have that kind of success, you know. So that I don't know those ideas have been kind of floating through my head the past few days as I've been um, watching the sports docs.
2: Well, the thing I know when I watched Last Dance, I, I was so surprised that given the fact that Michael Jordan's in control of the narrative that he portrays himself as being so boring that like he's the least interesting person in that show. And you would think if you were the one making the show, you would want to be the most interesting person. Well, I don't
1: know. I think that uh, there are people that I've known who don't like don't want anyone to really know them. And so they deflect attention away from themselves.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, while I'm out here uh, butchering sacred cows, (laughs) um, I (laughs) <laughs> you know, I it really doing a lot for my uh, for you know my my dude credibility. I ended up sort of not finishing it in part because a like you know the story on on Jordan is that he's kind of like a misanthropic sociopath, which isn't all that fun to hang out with. And then like most of it just kind of proved that he was. And so then it was just kind of like a question of like which supporting character and someone so many of them are so delightful, but which supporting character is going to carry you know, my attention, you know, for this next half hour and stuff. But ultimately, you do have kind of like a movie, a 10-hour extravaganza that's operating on a bunch of fore- foregone conclusions. And so it was only, you know, when something would come in and re- really provide some color. I mean, it, there was the part where George Siegel shows up and everything falls apart, and <laughs> they lost me then.
1: One thing I will say is that, um, you know, I, I didn't watch enough basketball in the 90s to ever have had it register who Horace Grant is. And he's uh-huh. now my favorite bull.
0: Karina, can you tell us about the verdict?
1: Sure. The verdict came out in 1982. At the Oscars, this was the year of Gandhi, which is one explanation why Paul Newman, though nominated, did not win Best Actor. The movie grossed $54 million in 1982-1983, Which would be $143 million in 2020 dollars, which is about the same as what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood made. Hmm. But this was back when a movie could open on like a medium number of screens and just kind of stick around forever. The verdict was in release for 55 weeks. Because it was released three weeks before the end of 1982, it made most of its money in 1983 and was the 19th highest grossing movie of that year a year which saw the release of two James Bond movies, both of which made more money than The Verdict, but combined made less than half the gross of the highest-grossing movie of that year, which was Return of the Jedi. This film was an adaptation of a novel, and it was the second-produced screenplay written by David Mamet. His first was Bob Rafelson's remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice. Producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown had hired Mamet to write the adaptation with the idea that Arthur Hiller would direct... But Hiller didn't like Mamet's draft, so Hiller left and Mamet was fired. Then Robert Redford was cast, brought on writer-director James Bridges, who eventually quit, and then the producers fired Redford. Then Sidney Lumet was hired, and he went through all the previous drafts of the screenplay, decided Mamet's was best, and made that one and cast Paul Newman. So this is the beginning of a big run for Mamet. Glengarry Glenn Ross would premiere in London the following year, and then between 1986 and 2001, he'd write and/or direct about Last Night, House of Games, The Untouchables, Homicide, Hoffa, Wag the Dog, The Spanish Prisoner, The Edge, Ronin, Hannibal, and Heist, plus <laughs> many more that maybe you won't recognize. But that's you know a hell of a run. It's a run. At the time of the verdict, Mamet was married to Lindsay Krause, who plays the nurse turned preschool teacher turned star witness in the movie. This was the only Mamet film Krause would appear in other than House of Games, his directorial debut before they divorced in 1990. So talking about Mamet's run, Newman was also coming off a pretty great run. We've talked before on this podcast about the sort of 20-year streak that Tom Hanks went on, basically beginning with Splash and ending with The Terminal. And Newman really gives Hanks a run for his money in the lo- longevity department. So he does The Long Hot Summer and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in 58, and then he kind of doesn't stop ever. In the next 10 years of his career, he makes Exodus, The Hustler, Paris Blues, Hud, Harper, Torn Curtain, and Cool Hand Luke. Then Butch Cassidy in 1969. Between that and The Verdict in 1982, he starts making a few more One For Me movies, including the couple of weirdo Robert Altman movies that we talked about when we talked about Three Women But then he's also in The Sting, a massive hit which won Best Picture, The Towering Inferno, and Slapshot. And right before the verdict is Absence of Malice. Then, after the verdict, Newman writes, directs, and stars in a progressive drama about a blue-collar dad and his kid called Harry and Son. And then immediately after that, he finally wins an Oscar for The Color of Money, which is obviously the most delayed unofficial career award ever. So that's a nearly 30-year, almost unbroken run that spans his full peak adulthood. And then you could argue that things slowed down for him after that, but he still gets nominated for two more Oscars and does the Hudsucker proxy. And he just never really does anything boring during that whole time. Or if he does, he doesn't do it for very long. And we will dig even deeper into Newman's career in our game later in the show.
0: Also, he never, ever, ever looks bad. I'm definitely in the, I'm not sure any man has ever been more beautiful on the screen than Paul Newman. And uh, it was was fascinating reading some -hmm. contemporary reviews of the verdict because it's the moment where like in America's movie critics like sees Paul Newman aging. Right. And uh, on the one hand, there's like a little bit of like, oh, finally, (laughs) you could see like Roger Ebert and others are like, oh, this is exciting. Like I can see how this guy's going to age and what, where his career is going to go. Mark, uh, what's your relationship uh, prior to the verdict? Prior to watching it?
2: Well, I'd never seen this movie before. I mean, I certainly am a Paul Newman fan. I, I one time, one of the very first like sort of like movie screenings I ever got to go to was of Robert Altman's The Gingerbread Man. And when the movie was over, I stood up and realized that Paul Newman was behind me, had been like sitting behind me for the whole movie, and I actually sort of like locked eyes with Paul Newman and said hello. And I will tell you, those eyes are incredible. Like they really are. It's everything you've ever imagined they were from a movie, and certainly in the verdict, there's lots of amazing like eyeball acting that he does and and so yeah, I mean Paul Newman he really is in so many ways like a perfect movie star like it seems like he didn't really put a foot wrong in a lot of ways like he you know seemed like a decent enough person and you know did obviously a lot of charitable work I mean, he had some you know issues I think in his personal life, but then also the fact that he was able to so often play what we now would call unlikable characters or sort of anti-heroes, and they, you would still be won over by them. There was still, and again, this is, I think, very much on display in the verdict, there's still a certain charm to him, even kind of when he's kind of at his worst. It's into the New York Times review that came out when the movie was released was written by Janet Maslin. She opened the review by saying that, you know, this is, in other hands, this role this role would either be all movie star, all actor, but Paul Newman is one of those rare people who is both a total movie star and a total actor. And he really gives all of that here in The Verdict.
0: Yeah, you know, we talked uh, in the very first episode of the show about Tom Hanks. And in so many ways, he is the same sort of figure in the culture in that, like, is this gen- general reputation for a good guy, sort of outdoing good works, a long term marriage that people admire. There's so many more, probably more interesting choices that Paul Newman is making throughout, but I do think that you're really kind of on to something that he really does seem to, you know, bring to each role an actor's touch that is always sort of acting first and in, in movie star second. How did you feel about uh, uh, Paul in The Verdict, Karina?
1: I loved him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had never seen this movie either. Um, Paul Newman is somebody who I am. I'm not as familiar with his filmography as I am of, of some other stars of his era and earlier, um, you know, I've kind of seen a lot of the greatest hits and, and uh, you know, not pretty much none of like the sort of smaller films. I, I had talked a few weeks ago about how I had just watched Paris blues and mm-hmm. which was, you know, great. Um, and so I just, you know, never gotten around to watching this. And I feel like it's, it's a fun thing to discover someone who's, obviously so great and to just be like kind of getting to know him at age 40. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's so great about Paul Newman is that he is always a movie star, even when he is doing something like this, which feels like it's sort of, you know, almost Taylor. It's what we would later consider to be Oscar bait, I think, you know, of taking somebody and, and meeting them like kind of when they're at their lowest and watching them redeem themselves. You're, there's never really any question of like whether or not he's going to do the right thing because he is, you know, just such a movie star and so good at that. Um, but it's you still have a sense of drama just watching him be.
2: Also, I think it says something about how it's hard to imagine anybody else in this role. Like what, he's so good and so perfect, and yet Karina, like you mentioned, you know, Robert Redford was in the running for this role on the the, the extra on the the dvd or blu-ray where producer david brown says that uh dustin hoffman was up for the you know pursued the huh. role carrie grant and frank sinatra he says both <laughs> pursued the role yeah which i can't you know imagine either one of them playing this part
1: right right yeah i mean even redford which is probably the close the most like plausible um you know i just you know i never believe redford when he's you know trying to be like dissolute so
0: I really admired exactly how, you know, how specific and how occasionally intense, not just his alcoholism is in this movie. It's really a stirring portrait of depression and particularly anxiety. Like the scene where he locks himself in the, in the bathroom was uh, was so charged and yet not something I really feel like I've seen in other certainly not in other mainstream movies. Like, you know, I found it interesting because this is obviously this movie where, you know, it's a guy with a lot of demons and he's going to, you know, going to work toward getting some of them off his back. Um, but the demons are really deeply felt, even though we don't spend a ton of time on backstory. Um, and that's all Newman. It just it really is like, you know, he he really finds a way to, to carry the weight of the world with him um, in a way that was really impressive.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you saying that it's all Newman, besides for his kind of like former legal partner slash friend, like doing some exposition about like to yeah. Charlotte Rampling's character about like how, you know, he got you know nearly disbarred the the script like really doesn't tell us very much about any of these characters. Yeah. I lo- I mean I love that kind of thing. I think that it's very um unusual for courtroom drama <laughs> like a genre that is usually built around just explaining everything. Right. Um and so I think it was especially thrilling to see a movie in that genre told in this way. When the movie ended with that sort of phone call from Charlotte Rampling to to Newman's character. And when it was over I turned to my husband and and I was like, Oh, the, it's over? Yeah. <laughs> it, it ends like that. But I haven't been able to stop thinking about that ending, you know, in the five days since I watched the film.
0: You know, you were talking about it as, you know, a redemption story, and it certainly is. But I think one of the things that I find most interesting about it, so often courtroom dramas are redemption stories. You know, like we're so familiar with the, the trope of the kind of like down on his or her luck, usually his luck lawyer, you know, who has fucked something up in his past. And this is his chance to sort of make things right. But this is so interesting because it's it's what he's really after is like a sort of you know he needs to feel good about himself again you know he's mostly just depressed and feeling you know sad about the lack of control that you know he has in his life and how he's sort of fallen and there is that moment that he has with with his client you know who's on the respirator you know where in is sort of spurred toward righteousness but the truth of the matter is, like, very few of his decisions, you know, beyond that moment, are driven by, you know, much of anything besides sort of ego. Like, he needs to win this case. You know, he needs to. Uh, I like that there isn't this sort of sense that this is a person who's out for, you know, it, despite his last speech, who's sort of out for, you know, justice for justice's sake, and and out to, you know, right some grievous wrong because that's what you do. It seems it it seems to be very aware that of the self-serving nature of what he's after. And I found that really fascinating. And, and it was really the kind of like the strength of the whole sort of tale for me.
2: That's something, something I've kind of turned over in my own mind is, is in the extent to which this is his personal journey and it's his kind of redemption arc. That's not always in the best interest of his clients. Yeah. And so like what he's doing and like the, what he makes this story about isn't what it's kind of supposed to be about. And so, I definitely have turned it over in my mind a few times of like, as you were saying, like, is he being selfish here, even though he's doing what may seem right for him or, you know, helps sort of his redemption? It's not really what's the right thing to do in the moment or it's not necessarily the best thing for his clients, which really should be his, his motivation. So, like, I, I, it's, it's interesting the way that, like, even him, him pursuing this way of, like, refinding himself may not necessarily be the best path for him to be on.
1: Well, but I I mean, you guys like he's maybe he doesn't really totally realize that he is doing this until the you know, close to the end. But he is speaking truth to power. You know, he is helping to sort of at least in this one specific case, like fight back against the corruption of the church and and a corrupt system that allows them to cover up their mistakes.
0: Oh, for sure. But I think that, you know, it's almost like he, you know, he hitches himself to a righteous cause. Um, because being on the side of the righteous is, is what he needs to do that mo- in that moment in his life. You know what I mean? Like he, like he starts to see that um, by doing good, it might sort of, uh, you know, might redeem him. It is, it's interesting. Um, I mean, besides uh, the punch, which was really sort of tough to swallow. And I, you know, I don't know how tough it was to swallow uh, in 1981, because the truth is it never pops up in, in the handful of reviews that I read. You know, there's something fundamentally dated, um, not just about that moment. Um, There's just something fundamentally dated and off and kind of off-putting about the whole Charlotte Rampling uh, storyline.
1: Well, I think, I mean, I just think it's so murky, you know? I mean, it's so unclear as to whether or not there's anything organic about her part of their relationship. Yeah. Um, You know, the scene of James Mason paying her off, he kind of alludes to like... Them having sort of a previous connection through her ex husband. Right. But even that is really unclear. It's unclear if he sent her to that bar to seduce him. It's, you know, she's clearly an alcoholic herself. So I, I mean, I, you know, I gotta say, I kind of like it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I kind of like how unclear and strange it is. Um, and the problem with like him punching her you know besides for it just as a depiction of violence against a woman is that it doesn't feel totally in character for him yeah i found that that to be like one of the few sort of false notes in the way that the characters were written and portrayed because it just feels like at that point like he wouldn't have that violence in him but i don't know maybe that was considered the correct response in 1981 to what his perceived um you know betrayal by her
0: it's obviously I mean it's incredible betrayal and so but but it is interesting like I don't know through these eyes uh through our contemporary eyes like how that punch is supposed to land like I I don't know if if we're supposed to get like a thrill of justice meted out and it's fine you know not sort of understanding the different period in history's you know uh Um, And that happens all the time when watching an old movie. In terms of the story, like I'm not actually sure what I don't know on this journey, what it is actually saying about his progress, (laughs) you know, or lack of progress or anything like that. Like it was jarring um, in the way that it, it kind of reminded me that with her with her being such a cipher and being such sort of a prop for his story, it did kind of make me realize like how it wasn't even that I needed, you know, a backstory details. I would like to have like a better sense of like the relationship was about to either of them. And that seemed missing. But you could tell there was like there was really smart stuff going on. It was so interesting to sort of see that this is a you know woman who had some legal c- career you know in the past and is clearly jockeying um, relatively effectively, we assume, to get into this high powered uh, Cambridge law firm. Yet, you know, here's Jack Warden literally treating her like the help. Trying to track down a Caitlin yes? Costello. Laura.
1: Laura, you got a cigarette?
0: Caitlin Costello.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. right. I well, she see. left about four years ago and we're looking for a chart. I'm sorry. Caitlin. Don't, Caitlin Costello. Bye. Laura, don't forget the cigarettes, huh?
0: I found that really interesting, but at the same time not entirely sure what to do with it. Well, to me,
2: I think that final beat that comes after the actual verdict, when you see her sort of sloppy and alone in a hotel room calling Newman, for me at least I got some sense that like she was on the sort of like the way down he once was on the way down and that he's, you know, been trying to pull himself back up and like you know, I whether he can Help her to not hit bottom, or if she is going to kind of drag him back down, or he can help her up. Like, there's a tension there that I thought was really interesting. And in some ways, like you said, Karina, it's interesting the movie ends where it does because that last moment implies almost like a whole other movie, or like a lot more to their story than what you get out of just that little moment, which I think doesn't necessarily. End their relationship so much as like reframe it in a in a way. So like that little like added beat at the end was was really intriguing. And in I'll, I'll show my nerdiness here. That there is a commentary track that Sidney Lumet did for the movie, and he talks about how that beat at the end was not in Mamet's original script. It was something that he. It's, Lumet wanted to add just because he wanted like a little something more with the with the two of them at the end. Interesting. Uh oh, interesting. Yeah. Apparently Mamet's original script did not even include the reading of the verdict. Like they come out to read the verdict and you don't hear it.
1: <laughs> huh. Crazy Mamet. Oh, Crazy Dave.
0: I'm kind of a fan of these movies of this period have the kind of uh, pretenses toward art cinema in the serious cinema um, but yet are are you know clearly just kind of entertainments. And this one really kind of occupies such a such an interesting middle ground, middle brow tension that I enjoy. You know, it is kind of interesting to see uh, how how far it's willing to kind of go um, with some of its ambiguities. One of the things that I like just in terms of how the kind of classic legal thriller um, and courtroom drama plot unfolded was I thought that that. The way that James Mason's character is introduced and the way that uh, sort of the action and the inner workings of his law firm in that side's, um, uh, side of the case um, is used to tell us what's happening in the case and you know, do some of the important deposition work that you need on screen for storytelling. I thought that was great. Like I love the scene where they're deposing the doctor. Um, and they're coaching him up
2: and what did your team do then well, you brought 30 years of medical experience to bear isn't that what you did yes a patient riddled with complications with questionable information on their medical charts we did everything we could to save her and to save the child yes you reached down into death my god uh, we tried to save her you can't know you can't know <laughs> good good
0: and there's this real stretch where like james mason you know, is really kind of only re- revealed except for in this kind of a tool of the man kind of way. There's only that hint of villainy uh, when he has paid off, you know, Paul Newman's girlfriend, essentially. You know, I found that character of the extremely competent um, shark lawyer who is not you know, particularly vile and repellent, which they usually are in that role. Um, I really loved him. I thought it was a, it was a super strong um, foil for Newman in this
1: part. There's nothing not to like about James Mason.
0: So, folks, what do we think? Was this a good time to be watching The Verdict?
1: I say... Mark, when you oh. go first?
0: Oh, Karina, why don't you go first? Sorry. <laughs>
1: Sorry. I was so excited about this question because I've been th- I've been thinking about it, you know, since I was in the middle of watching the movie, which is like, absolutely yes, because of it's just sort of everything I want right now. It's like a super handsome actor being a movie star... Um, it is a, a familiar genre that's doing something interesting with the genre. And then it's just like all of this like old school East Coast bar where like you can just hang out and then order a steak. And then at one point, like there's like a window he goes to and he makes himself a sandwich like and and then, you know, the eggs, the eggs. It's like
0: there's a box of eggs just sitting out for anyone to eat. And then
1: it's like the pinball. Like, I don't know if I'll ever touch a bar pinball machine again. You know, it's just all this stuff where it's like I want, you know, I'll take, you know, an alcoholic downfall. I just want to be in that bar.
2: (laughs) Lumet says on the commentary track that he u- he doesn't like to reuse locations. He had used that location, that bar in one other movie, but he liked it so much, he used it again. And he says that it was in New York City that it was on 10th and A. So I don't I don't know Oh wow, interesting. I
1: oh, really? I don't know
2: when it was, you know, if it still exists, when it stopped being a bar. But, yeah, I mean, the the windows on it are very distinctive, obviously. And he also, I think it appears, he says, in one of the Godfather movies. Oh, fascinating. Well, it
1: reminded me a little bit of a bar, which was one of the last bars I went to before we had to stop going places, actually in New Orleans. Now it seems crazy, but I was in New Orleans, like, the first few days of March. Um, and then it also kind of reminded me of this place where... Um, uh, we would go to sometimes when Ryan was shooting Knives Out in rural Boston. Um, you know, there was like a, a place where, you know, it was more of a restaurant, but it was a bar too. And, you know, the, the only thing that seemed safe to eat on the menu was like the New York strip steak. And they had Kino at every table. And so like I, I tried exactly. really hard to figure out how to play Kino and it didn't really succeed. But great times.
2: That is one of my favorite parts of the movie is when – the second time Charlotte Rampling comes in the bar and Paul, Paul Newman's kind of getting somewhere with her and he says, you know, let's let's get some dinner. And you think they're going to go somewhere right. else. <laughs> they're going to go to a but restaurant, then they just, but no. They've moved from the bar to just a table kind of behind a railing. And so it's like that was taking her out to dinner was just like sitting at a table instead of sitting at the bar.
1: And you get the feeling the bartender cooked that steak himself.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. I just,
1: I, you know, I love it. I mean, you know, like... I don't believe in God, but like God willing, we'll all be able to go to a bar someday and play pinball and eat a questionable steak.
0: Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I when he has the good round of pinball <laughs> and he's sort of like momentary lifted, I really felt that I was really right there with him. <laughs> oh, yeah. A
2: couple of times he does this sort of like really like uplifted, like. I'm not going to try to do it, but sort of like a woohoo that just, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's so, it just feels uncharacteristic for Paul Newman kind of, which makes uh-huh. it feel super raw and like, like-
0: And revealing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So how about you? What do you think about this one? Oh,
2: I think for sure, this is a terrific movie for right now. I think the the fact that it's like, A courtroom drama, so you kind of know where it's going to be going, but then there are enough surprises and it's done in such an interesting way that the movie still feels very fresh. It has like a seriousness to it that you feel like you've watched a good movie, but then also it is still pleasurable and fun. There's nothing like punishing really about the movie. And I think also apart from the scene we're talking about where he hits Charlotte Rampling, I think it still like plays okay to like a modern sensibilities like there's nothing that one thing aside it's like it's okay for 2020 and then and then just yeah there's you just can't there's it, there's a lot in this movie that you just can't be
0: I will say that I definitely went in expecting to truly love this and and I don't mean to be that guy this episode but I am totally that guy mm-hmm. you know cuz there's not there's I don't think there's anything I like more than a high-minded popcorn movie, it, you know where I have sort of trouble with the movie, and it's and it was you know it's definitely at the margins and whole you know please go out and watch the movie if this sounds good is was actually in some of the popcorn parts like there were just times when I wanted I wanted the entertainment aspects to be uh, more entertaining and I wanted the twist to feel more twisty, but man oh man just the chance to like hang out you know and stare into those dreamy blues for all that time is really something. And this is a sort of a completely transporting and nostalgic look for a sort of like a time gone by. Over and over and over again, I find super valuable while we're all locked in and feeling very much of the times we're living in. So for sure, go watch The Verdict. We ready to play a game?
1: So I had a really hard time trying to figure out a game related to The Verdict. And then Ryan, my husband, gave me an idea and I don't have a title for this game. Um, <laughs> I want. I hoped that I was going to be able to figure out like a way to create a game called Paul Newman or Paul Who-man. But <laughs> I, that, it doesn't really fit this game. One yeah. thing that it does fit is this idea, you know, borrowed from our former guest, Lindsay Weber, of the Who Weekly podcast. It has to do with some of Paul Newman's who are movies. Excellent. So... Basically, the concept is, you know, I in my history segment, I listed off all of these hits that, you know, iconic films that we associate Paul Newman with. But this guy just worked a lot. He just worked a lot for like 50 years. And so in addition to all of those movies, there's also a ton of movies that I've never heard of that I think have pretty much fallen out of the sort of public consciousness. So in this game, I'm going to give you two movie descriptions and titles. One of them is a real Paul Newman film and the other one I made up. (laughs) And you have to tell me which is real and which one isn't. Excellent. All right. Question one. Which one of these is the real Paul Newman movie? Is it... The left handed gun, the, uh, the description of which is after his employer is murdered by rival cattlemen, a troubled and uneducated young cowboy vows revenge on the murderers. The or is gun. it sometimes a stranger? An upstart rodeo rider clashes with his businessman brother in pre-World War I West Texas.
0: Well done, because both of these sound like real movies.
2: Nate, I'm, I'm fairly certain The Left Handed Gun
0: is a movie. Yeah, but I'm also fairly certain the other other movie is a movie. Um, I'm sorry, Judge, what was the second movie title?
1: Sometimes a Stranger.
0: Sometimes a Stranger starring Paul Newman.
2: But I think because of the fact that Paul Newman directed Sometimes a Great Notion, I think Karina is attempting to play with our sense memory of what we think a Paul Newman movie might be.
0: Classic Karina. Yes, let's do it. (laughs) The left-handed gun.
1: Correct. Question two.
0: Glad to have you right here.
1: Is the real Paul Newman movie From the Terrace, in which an ambitious young executive chooses a loveless marriage and an unfulfilling personal life in exchange for a successful Wall Street career, or is it The Price of Success, in which a former convict will do whatever it takes to get even with the tycoon who bankrupted his father?
0: Okay. Both this one I'm well done because both totally these movies can can clearly <laughs> yeah. be movies. But I feel like we're going to know all the Paul Newman movies likely from like the seventies and beyond, right? And yeah. so I'm trying to picture Paul Newman pre this time. He could even, he could have he made in, a
2: lot of movies in the fifties and sixties.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like uh, he's trying on a lot of different roles. I feel like he's wearing a cowboy hat sometimes, and I like this notion of Paul Newman as the. Office drone moving up the ladder or whatever the plot of the first one was. I like that Terrace one.
2: I'm pretty stumped on this one, so I'll, I'll, if, you have a, if you have a good feeling about I'm it. Feeling I'm
0: feeling lucky doing. on the Terrace one.
1: So your final answer is From the Terrace?
0: From the Terrace, exactly. The Terrace one, as we call it.
1: Correct. Yes. From, from the Terrace wow. is a real movie from 1960. All right, question three. Is the real Paul Newman movie The Lonely in which a young man leaves his Middle America farm in search of his real father and becomes involved with an older woman in the city? Or is it Lady L, in which Lady L is an elegant elderly lady who recalls the past loves and lusty adventures she has lived through?
0: Huh, and and so presumably he's just one of the lusty adventures?
2: I'm feeling better about the lonely lady l sounds like a bit of a stretch
0: here's my logic though okay so you very correctly got into karina's head before right (laughs) i think i frankly think that that unless she's unless and i wouldn't put it past her because she is very gifted when it comes to these these games i think that lady l in picking a paul newman movie where where i'm not sure what character he would play in the description might be a bridge too far for Karina. So I think that's the one. I think the other one sounds like a movie Paul Newman would be in. Therefore, he wasn't in it.
1: Correct. Yes. Whoa. Yeah. So Lady L is a real movie from 1965 in which Paul Newman is second on the poster. So, I mean, maybe he's like the big love. It's like Sophia Loren is Lady L. And then um, the, the two men whose names are on the poster are Paul Newman and David Niven. All right. Next question. Is the real Paul Newman movie, WUSA, in, about a radio station in the Deep South, which becomes the focal point of a right-wing conspiracy, or is it Deadline, in which a veteran investigative reporter discovers a rival newspaper has been infiltrated by the KKK?
0: Ooh.
2: I'm like 85% sure that WUSA is a
0: movie. It, uh, yes. I, I, that It sounds vaguely familiar, so I'm going to go with that, but again- I would like to see Paul Newman in both these movies, so well done. Let's go with WSA.
1: Correct. You guys are on a roll. Hey,
0: look at us. This is a fun game. I'm enjoying <laughs> this game uh, totally. very much.
1: Okay, well, we only have two more wait, questions. No, what, year, what year was WSA? 1970.
0: That makes me even yeah. more intrigued. I like that. a That's a good premise for 1970.
1: Here we go. Is the real Paul Newman movie, When Falls Danger? A tornado threatens a resort and its guests as a love triangle ensues between the property manager, his ex-wife, and a mysterious stranger. Or is it when time ran out? An active volcano threatens a South Pacific Island resort and its guests as a power struggle ensues between the property's developer and a drilling foreman.
2: I'm going to go with the second one just because I want to see that movie.
0: I feel like there was just a phase, you know, in the sort of Hawaii becomes a state phase where people really like Tropical Island movies and I feel like a twister is harder to pull off. Let's go with uh let's go with the, the Tropical Island one.
1: You guys are so good at this game. Hey, look at us. When Time Ran Out from nineteen eighty is a real movie about an active volcano.
0: From nineteen eighty? <laughs> yeah. He does this two years yeah. before the verdict? He does this right after Slapshot.
1: Uh-huh. Look, those race
0: cars don't pay for themselves
1: um, which one is the real paul newman if you guys get this one right it'll be the first time ever in the history of this show i think that you've got gotten all questions right so
2: you don't tell the pitcher when he's throwing <laughs> a no-hitter i know exactly.
1: W- one more batter
0: <laughs> again with the head games <laughs> yeah. from kareena longwood
1: yeah you, you can do it champ oh god all right here we go pocket money Broke and in debt, an otherwise honest cowboy gets mixed up in some shady dealings with a crooked rancher. Or is it, fortune favors the bold. A cynical former race car driver turned factory worker plots a comeback, but gets drawn into labor unrest along the way.
0: <laughs> I, think that, I think this is a decoy because I think, it's, I think we're supposed to sit and tell, think to ourselves, is this where he fell in love with race cars? But I think that sounds like an excellent movie. That is my favorite of I think that is a fake movie. I'm calling it out, but that is my favorite of your fake movies.
2: So wait, so you so you think the actual movie is Is, is pocket this pocket money? money? Yes. Yeah, I I, I cuz again, I I feel like pocket mo-
0: money is a movie. Yes. Let's go with pocket money.
1: Correct. Oh. Huh. We You can take a victory lap. <laughs> wow. Wow, you guys. I really thought this game was going to be harder.
2: No, it was no. It was that was. I mean, we got it right, but that was it was a a challenging game. I mean, look, it took a combined effort.
1: If if you know, all of these ideas are available. You know, if you want to, if any of you guys want to start developing, fortune favors the bold with me. <laughs> yeah, you should register all of those immediately with the WGA. I know you.
0: Re- you really had me at labor unrest uh, in that last one. That was really when I wanted to see that movie. Mark, can you tell us about? Uh, a theater or a film society or screening series that you are particularly missing right now?
2: Yeah, I think this is—I think this is one that no one has mentioned yet, but I'm not sure. It's the the public programming of the UCLA Film and Television Archive. They have their screenings at the Billy Wilder Theater at, at the Hammer Museum, which is one of my favorite theaters in town. And and you know the thing I like so much about what they show at UCLA is that on the one hand it feels sort of slightly institutional and sort of, you know, I don't want to say stuffy, but you feel like you're seeing something sort of high-minded. But they also, their programming is some of the most eclectic and sort of exciting around town. They, I think, especially over the last few years, they've done a great job of sort of having a lot of programming that works towards kind of expanding our idea of what the canon is. They they did a series back um, a little, maybe like a year and a half ago now, called Liberating Hollywood that was about female filmmakers of the 1970s that to me was just so eye-opening and so exciting and they have their regular festival of preservation they always do they just recently have been doing a series of f- films that they called American Neorealism that was able to include filmmakers like Barbara Loden and Charles Burnett and Shirley Clark and so I just I always have a great time there and I like the movies they usually get a decent print they have some great guests I saw a barn burner of a Q&A mm-hmm. last year um, it was um, Mary Lambert's Siesta, and both Jodie Foster and Ellen Barkin were there and were not uh, pulling any punches. Like it was a very freewheeling Q&A. So I always have a great time when I go to the Hammer Museum for UCLA screenings. And so I really, I, I currently miss that a lot.
1: Let's find out what we're going to watch next week with culture writer Rachel Syme. Hey, Nate and Karina, this is Rachel Syme. Do you want to watch One Sings, The Other Doesn't? So
0: track down One Sings, The Other Doesn't, Anya Svarda's musical film about abortion and feminism and enduring friendship from 1976. And meet us back here next week.
1: As always, you can drop us a line at smallpictureshow at gmail.com. You can follow Nate on Twitter at The Memory Palace. And you should subscribe to the podcast, The Memory Palace, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And you should subscribe to Karina's podcast, You Must Remember This, and follow her at Karina Longworth. Talk to you next time.